Could family genetics be a reason that no matter what we try, we still can't lose the fat and inches from our problem areas? To learn more, we spoke to Dr. Brian Strand from Sonobello. While some people can eat everything and stay thin, others diet and exercise daily and still pack on fat and inches to their problem areas. It's not your fault. It can be genetics. If you struggle to lose the fat from your tummy, love handles, thighs, and back, you're likely battling your family genetics. The good news is we have an answer. Sonabello uses a remarkable technique called microlaser fat removal. In one comfortable visit, the fat in your hardest places to lose is gone permanently. Stop wrestling with your family genes and lose the fat permanently. And right now, you can save $250. The results are life-changing. Do this for you. Don't wait. Visit sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. Sonobello.com slash save. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. This is A Different Perspective with Kevin Randall. A retired U.S. Lieutenant Colonel, Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for nearly 50 years. Kevin has investigated some of the most famous UFO cases in the world and has been consulted for dozens of documentaries about UFOs. Considered one of the leading experts into the Roswell UFO crash of 1947, Kevin has written more than 25 books about UFOs, including the recently published Roswell in the 21st century. Now, here is the host of A Different Perspective, Kevin Randall. Good evening. I am Kevin Randall, and this is A Different Perspective. Uh, tonight we're going to take a look back or talk about some of the things that have interested me without having a guest on because, frankly, I wanted to do that. And because we've come up on the one-year anniversary of this program. It's about a year ago. I think August 17th is the first time we recorded one of the programs. So we've been on we've, – we've been doing this for about a year, and I thought it was time to take a look back on some of that. One of the things that has come up and questions that I get periodically is people wanting to know a little bit more about my military background, and I'm not sure exactly why. But I thought I'd start off with, with uh, talking a little bit about that. I was a member of the 116th Assault Helicopter Company based in Kuchi and the 187th Assault Helicopter Company in Tainan. If you go to the 187th AHC Assault Helicopter Company, type it into your search engine, uh, you can come up to a unit roster and go to the RSP, look on down, scroll on down, and you can find a picture of me both uh, in uh, – from Vietnam and from my tour in Iraq, kind of evidence that I was really in both of those places. Interestingly enough, the aircraft I'm standing by in the Vietnam picture, which you cannot see, was called Frog Killer, which was a reference to the fact that it was a slick, meaning it was a troop carrier, and we would land in rice paddies and things like that, killing the frogs. So that was one of the things that we had done. Um, and I thought I'd talk a little bit about one of the sort of irritating things about serving in Vietnam is we were landing in a uh, uh, landing zone, obviously. We are taking in troops into a landing zone. I was the aircraft commander flying with a fairly new Peter pilot, which is what we called them. And just as we were about to touch down, there was a huge explosion in front of the, the aircraft. And I did what was called a hovering auto-rotation, which put us down quickly. The troops in the back, they all jumped out and ran away. Two of the other aircraft in the flight pulled up to see if we were injured. I'm looking at the engine instruments and realize they're all in the green. The aircraft is flyable, even though the pedals on the pilot side had been broken off. And we didn't have a, a piece of glass in the cockpit that hadn't been punctured by something. Um, 
the rotor blades were shaking. We were getting what was called a one-to-one -one vibration, which meant there had been shrapnel through the rotor blades. But I'm thinking the aircraft's flyable. I'm getting out of there. And we had somebody on the air calling, I know where the RPGs are coming from. I know where the RPGs are coming from. And I'm thinking if they were that close with the first one, I don't want to hang around. So we start climbing out uh, once the flight had taken off. And I was got got behind the uh, the lead aircraft. And as I'm, I'm thinking about this, I think we land in the next pickup zone. The troops aren't going to want to get on this aircraft. It's broken. So I peel off. I tell them I'm going to Coochie. I go to Coochie. I radio the tower and said, I'm coming in with extensive combat damage, which was kind of fun for a 19-year-old. I'm a 19-year-old helicopter pilot. And remember watching 12 o'clock high and all the guys flying their B-17s. And about a year before, we'd been playing at that sort of. And now I'm in the real situation. Um, I, so I said, I'm coming in with complete... Uh, or extensive combat damage, and they wanted to know if I wanted to declare an emergency. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm declaring an emergency. So they clear everybody out of my way. I landed downwind, which was dumb, but I got the aircraft on the ground. We went over to a maintenance area and shut the aircraft down. And once we'd done that, I realized how, how extensive the damage was. It was quite a bit. The aircraft was totaled. Basically, it was totaled. It would never fly again the way it was. It would have to be heavily repaired. I think what they did was cannibalize it. But what annoyed me about all this is this colonel shows up, and he's there with a lieutenant, and he tells the lieutenant, climb up in the one seat and dang your feet out of the broken chin bubble. And I got a life-size picture of this guy going home and telling, his, telling everybody, look, I was flying this aircraft when this happened, which of course was untrue. But we went on up to the 269th Combat Aviation Battalion, because uh, the spare had been launched. They were bringing spare two down, and I was going to take over that. We were going to have lunch at the, uh, the mess hall there, which are now called dining facilities for those of you, keep, those of you keeping score. Um, and so we're sitting there having lunch, and this captain comes up to me and says, the battalion commander is very disappointed in you. And I said, why would be that? Why, why, why is that? He said, well, your boots aren't properly shined. I'm thinking, I've just blown up a aircraft. I'm lucky to be alive. Uh, everybody is safe, and the battalion commander is worried about the shine on my boots. Well, I've just been through an explosion. Maybe that explains it. So I, I always thought about that, you know, the, the priorities of some people, especially those who were not flying in the war uh, on a daily basis. But that's uh, an interesting war story. But you can check this story out if you so desire. If you go to the 187th AHC, Assault Helicopter Company, and look down, scroll down in the unit history um, and get to May 16th, I think, 1969, there'll be the story of that. So that kind of gives you an idea of a little bit of my background, not a whole lot. When we come back here momentarily, I think we'll talk a little bit about the Socorro sightings that came up on the show not that long ago and what we've learned since then. So we will be back right after this, so stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, and WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the X-Zone Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan, and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere, 24-7-365.
as I promised just moments ago, we're back. Um, we're done with the Vietnam War stories. I could tell you Iraqi War stories if you wanted to hear, but I don't think it's really necessary. I think, you know, I've kind of proven a little bit about those credentials that I talk about periodically and that sort of thing. When we started the program, I was always on the search for guests, and I uh, had called the, I guess, the uh, publicity guy for MUFON and said, you know, I've got some people here that would be interested in being on the program to talk about these things. And he said, yeah, let's uh, talk to Ben Moss and Tony Angiola. I said, okay. Uh, they had been doing research into the Socorro UFO sighting. For those of you who are unaware, this is the Lonnie Zamora case from April of 1964, Zamora being a police officer, seeing an object land on the south side of Socorro. He goes up there. He sees something in the arroyo ahead of him that looks like an overturned car. He's going down to help. He sees two small individuals close to it that he said were about the size of 10-year-old children, either large children or small adults. And as they spotted him, they got back in the craft and it took off. And I'm always saying that the unfortunate thing here is this is a single witness sighting. It would be a great sighting if there were additional witnesses. But Ben Moss and Tony Angelo were reinvestigating the Socorro case, and they had been doing a lot of this work, and I thought it would be interesting to have them on the program, which we did. As they're talking about this, they mentioned that there had been three witnesses who had seen the object in the sky, and they had reported it to the police. And I pushed them on this point. I never got a satisfactory answer to the question about who these people were or how they knew about it, and had they checked the police records for confirmation of this because you know this would be large this would be huge if there were actual additional witnesses in the Zamora, in the Zamora case if we could actually find people who, who had uh, reported these sorts of things but it got me started interested in this so I started doing a little bit of research into the Socorro case and I was looking at the Project Blue Book files which are now available online for anybody who wants to look um, I was using a microfilm that I had of, of that and going through it, I discovered a report, I discovered for me, others had seen it before, uh, by a Captain Richard Holder. He had been a range officer for White Sands Missile Range. And if you look at a map of New Mexico, you'll see the White Sands Missile Range. The base is actually down south of Alamogordo, but the range, the range is huge and it extends all the way up nearly to Socorro. And it turns out that uh, Holder's duty station at White Sands was actually closer to Socorro than it was the actual physical base, so he lived in Socorro. The point being is he was called in because they thought it might have been something that strayed off the White Sands missile range. So he's called in and he's um, he interrogates Zamora with an FBI agent um, named Arthur Burns, and the FBI agent says, "Don't don't tell anybody I'm FBI." I wanted to keep the fact the FBI was involved out of this thing. But they, they interview Zamora, they talk to a lot of the people, they're talking to the other police officers there. And Holder writes a report that night. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pounds. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Night, uh, either very late at night on April 24th when it took place or the next early the next morning, like two or three o'clock in the morning of April 25th. And in this report, he puts a line that he was told by the dispatcher that three people had called into the police station about having seen this thing and heard the roar from it. So now we've got three additional witnesses. Nobody thought to follow up on it that day. We, we know that they're out there. We've got documentation. These people exist, but we don't know who they are. So, you know, we, we've lost an opportunity here, but we do have some confirmation that that had been going on. So I was able to confirm part of that. In the interim, I had gotten a email from a publisher asking about a book that he had heard that I was going to be publishing and wanted to know if, you know, they could buy it. And I said, you know, it's already spoken for, but I'm doing this research into Socorro. And they said, uh, yeah, send us three chapters and let us look at it. So that kind of inspired additional research by me. I talked to Ray Stanford, who is the 
who, who, who's like to say he, he literally wrote the book on the Socorro case. So I talked to Ray Stanford. We had him on the program to talk about Socorro as well and his experiences and get his point of view. He may be the only living person who was actually on the scene within days of deciding. Um, I, I, Holder, I believe, is, is dead. Burns is dead. Lonnie Zamora is dead. Hynek, who, Hynek, J. Allen Hynek, who was the um, Air Force consultant, the Project Blue Book was there within days of the sighting. He is dead. I believe Moody, who was there as part of Project Blue Book, is dead. Um, there were uh, the Cor Corlin and Jim Lorenzen from, from APRO. They're, they're, they're dead. So Stanford makes this claim that he's the only living person that was on the scene with all the, these people uh, in the days that followed. So that may, he may have a great case there. And we talked to him about what he had learned uh, about the Socorro sighting, and he found what he thought of as audio witnesses, which are people who heard the roar, and he talked to a number of people. But again, he didn't write down the names. And it's just incredible. We're not taking we're not taking names, which is I thought what we were supposed to be doing, and would give us a hint as to who these people were, so that we could find them and talk to them and find out exactly what they had they had said. But uh, so Stanford told me on the air and and in other conversations I had with him that he had been to dinner with a radio announcer who had been doing a story the story about the, this. And while they were there, he talked to these two women, older women, who had heard the object and said they'd heard it twice. They heard it apparently flying over and they heard it taking off. Great confirmation. And I said to Stanford, do we uh, know who they are? And he said, no. We don't, he didn't know the names. And besides, it, would be, it was 50, 60 years ago, and the women probably have died since then. And I'm thinking, if we knew the neighborhood they lived in, we might be able to find some people who are younger and would still be alive and could, could corroborate this this uh, audio um, examination, observation, observation of, of the UFO. But uh, unfortunately, we missed that opportunity as well. But the real point is, and looking at it, I, I understand from a skeptical point of view, we have three people who claim they have seen it, they, but we don't know who they are. All we have is the, the notes made by Holder. But it does confirm that that was going on. So it's not just Lonnie Zamora. Looking at some of the stuff that Jerry Clark had done on the, on the case, he found a couple of witnesses who later in the day, after the thing supposedly taken off, uh, had seen it in a different, different location, but, but not that far from Socorro. And I'm thinking all of this kind of comes into play and is important when we're studying the entire case because it, A, makes it a much bigger case, much harder to explain away as something um, of a delusion or a hallucination. Uh, Philip Klass, the great skeptic, the great debunker, I probably should say. And you know, I had great respect for Phil Klass because he made us work harder. And I knew Phil Klass fairly well. In fact, we'd been sailing on the Potomac to show you how well I knew him. That, that we'd actually done that. But um, Phil Klass was debunking this thing, and his first idea was that it was a hoax, that it had been created by uh, the mayor of Socorro, and Lonnie Zamora, the mayor being Zamora's boss, because the landing site supposedly was land owned by the mayor. Nobody bothered to check that out. Um, it's, it's reported in any number of UFO books repeatedly. The mayor owned the land where they, the thing supposedly landed. Turns out, if you look at the tax records, the mayor didn't own the land. So it wasn't a hoax created by the mayor and Lonnie Zamora so that they could make this worthless scrub land into something valuable. Here's a landing site of a UFO and we could build a motel and a hot dog stand and all of this stuff. A year after the event, some of the Socorro City Council decided, well, maybe we should exploit this as a way of dragging in tourists. Never happened. Uh, and I'm not sure, you know, would you really like to go look at a piece of land where there's nothing left to see except sand? Uh, I'm not sure what kind of a draw that would be. There would have to be something else going on. Uh, in, in Roswell, they, of course, created the museum, which is a big draw for people and that sort of thing. But it turns out that story is not true. Uh, the other story that, that was floated about was that high school students had created this illusion to make Lonnie Zamora looked bad because they didn't like him. He was a police officer. This is the 1960s. Nobody liked police officers, especially high school students that kept getting speeding tickets by the, uh, given by the police officer. But I'm, I'm just not sure that 
high school students would have had the technical ability to pull something like that off and completely flew with Samara without leaving any evidence behind of what they had done. Later on, it came out that it may have been um, students at the um, New Mexico School of Mines, which is in Socorro, uh, physics students there, uh, college students. So they would have been a little bit more sophisticated. But once again, we have that problem. There was there was no evidence left behind. The president at one point, a guy named Colgate, who I guess was a, I shouldn't say I guess, he was a, a well-respected scientist, had written a letter to uh, Linus Pauling saying that the whole thing was a hoax designed by the students. No evidence of that, but he said that. And people went, well, there's this letter to Pauling that says it was a hoax. Well, the fact it went to Pauling is completely irrelevant. It came from Colgate. He wouldn't name names, and that's always the problem. He wouldn't. They wouldn't name names. This kind of an idea that there was some kind of a, a hoax perpetrated on Zamora simply doesn't work. Um, there's no evidence of it. There was nothing going on. Hynek knew the president of the uh, the uh, School of Mines prior to Colgate taking over, and they talked privately about this. And I'm absolutely convinced that had it been a student hoax, and Hynek and, and Blue Book were looking for evidence that it was a hoax, um, would have been warned about that. You know, this is a student hoax. They thought it was a great trick. There's no explanation of how they pulled it off. Um, so I'm, I'm not convinced it was a hoax. There was an idea it might have been an experimental lunar lander, which was in undergoing some kind of testing there at White Sands and, and the areas around there, but it apparently wasn't being tested uh, as an autonomous craft in April of 1964. It was later before they did that. There was some kind of test at White Sands apparently on the morning of April 24th where they had lifted it up with a helicopter, but I cannot believe that it A, had drifted that far off the range and B, that had there been a helicopter involved, Zamora wouldn't have seen it. You know, so I mean, it's the hoax explanations and these other explanations simply don't work. So I put together this book, which is now called Contact in the Desert, which will be out in just a few weeks, which is a really great summation here. But I wanted to point out that the program kind of inspired me, and I say the program, a different perspective, uh, inspired me to look a little bit d deeper into this because of things that the, the guests, Ben Moss, Tony Angio, uh, um, Ray Sanford had said on the program, wanted just kind of it expired, inspired me to um, see what I could learn on myself. And I talked to uh, people in Socorro who had been directly involved. A guy named Rick Baca had drawn an illustration based on what Lonnie Zamora had said and seen. Uh, Zamora being debriefed, if you will, in the office of the city attorney because the mayor was worried about some kind of a lawsuit. So they wanted to get all of this sort of thing down. Zamora was kind of worried about his job as well. So we have an illustration based on exactly what Zamora said and exactly um, what the craft looked like and exactly uh, what the creatures looked like. And some of the problems that came out of the case where he was advised, and I'll have to get this in quickly, he was advised by Holder, not to mention an insignia he had seen on the side because they would use that to... Um, weed out people who are making it up. And Burns had said, maybe you shouldn't mention the little people you saw because you'll be held up to ridicule in the, um, uh, in the press and by some other people for seeing these alien creatures. So, you know, the, the idea came out, well, he was, he was ordered not to talk about these aspects. It was just really not quite that way. And the Zamoras, the Zamoras, the Lorenzans actually uh, agreed with, with Burns and, uh, holder about those sorts of things. You can take a look at my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. There's more information about Zamora and some of these items uh, that I posted there uh, even before the program began, but other things about the program. You can look up the programs as well. They're, they're listed on the blog so that you can listen to what uh, Ben Moss, Tony Angela, and uh, Ray Sanford had said. We will be back right after this on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, so stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, 
at WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. You might remember just moments ago I said we'd be back, and I'm back, just like I promised. I think we finished with Socorro. As I say, um, take a look at my blog, uh, type Lonnie Zamora, type Socorro into the search engine, and it'll bring you to the, uh, the articles that relate to that specifically um, that I published over the years. I'll give you more information if you're interested in it. And uh, if you want a great in-depth look at it, take a, take a look at uh, Contact in the Desert, which will be out in a, a few weeks. Uh, it's already up on Amazon if you care to look there. One of the things that I wanted to talk about today as well, which doesn't really relate to the program so much, but this idea that Jack the Ripper has been identified. I was watching a program on history. It's no longer the History Channel. It is now simply history. And it's uh, talking about this guy named H.H. Holmes. His great-grandson is on the program, a former CIA agent. I don't know what she did, but she was with the CIA for a while. I have been investigating the case, and they, they know who... Uh, Jack the Ripper was. It was this H.H. Holmes, who was an American, who had uh, gone over to London and committed these crimes, which I thought was kind of interesting, except not that long ago, there was an article from a number of newspapers in Great Britain about a guy named James Maybrick. He's the Jack the Ripper. They've had a diary that he supposedly created um, back in the late 1880s, when the Ripper murders were taking place, 1888 where he sort of confesses in the diary. It's been around since 1992, and it was originally thought to be a hoax. Um, and the guy who found it uh, gave a story about how it, ca it came into his hands, which turned out probably not to be true, and he later repudiated that and said, I, I, I made the whole thing up, and not long after that, he repudiated the repudiation. So it's back in play. And supposedly they've done tests on the ink and the formulations of the ink and the markers they looked for in the ink showed that it was ink that had been manufactured prior to 1890, 1891. So clearly the ink was from the proper period. Um, and it was tasted by a number of different people. The problem is with this, the guy who is now pushing forward this forward is a documentarian. And so he's, he's um, doing a documentary about uh, this is the real Jack the Ripper. And here's this diary that, that says all that. There are problems with it, and it's problems with May, Maybrick's story and all of that sort of thing. But, um, you know, here's here's another name thrown out there. But I'm going to take a step back to this H.H. Holmes guy. He was really a weird character. He created what, he called, what they've now labeled the Murder Castle in Chicago, which was a three-story building. And, and he uh, supposedly designed it so that he could kill people and dispose of the bodies without ever leaving the the place. It uh, had three stories, as I said. Uh, the first floor was like shops and things like that. I think there was a butcher on the on one uh, one of the shops, and I, I forget what all was there. Maybe an apothecary or a pharmacist or a drugstore or whatever. The second floor was kind of his lair with all these rooms with bizarre entrances and exits and doors that opened onto brick walls and all this nonsense. And the third floor was supposed to be sort of a hotel, so you could check in. And it's kind of like the Roach Motel. People checked in, but they didn't check out. Uh, and he was eventually uh, charged with murder, although he was a great con man. Apparently, you know, he would he would uh, hire a contractor to build part of his murder castle and fire them and never pay them and bring somebody else in, probably so they wouldn't know exactly what was going on. But he had a great habit of doing that um, Ordering things, never paying for them, um, uh, all sorts of con games that he was running and that sort of thing, which had gotten him into a little bit of trouble. But the the one that really got him, he was um, had a friend that he had met, and they were going to stage the guy's murder, not murder, but his death, prove, prove the guy had died so they could get the insurance. And uh, the idea was they would substitute another body for his, and it would be badly disfigured, so it wouldn't be easy to identify. Um, but apparently he killed the guy 
and wanted to keep all the insurance money for himself. And that was the one they finally caught him on, and they, they hanged him, I think, in 1896. But the idea from the history documentary is that they've been researching this Holmes's life, and there was a gap in where he was from um, early in 1888 to late in 1888, and the period of the Ripper murders was um, a period when they can't place him anywhere. They found steamship records that say H. Holmes had been um, had crossed the Atlantic into into London, the London area. I'm not sure how uh, common a name H. Holmes is, but I know that in the Roswell case, when we were searching for Naomi Self, this is a nurse that Glenn Dennis had identified, Naomi Self, and I'm thinking that's a pretty pretty bizarre name. I don't know how he came up with it. We found four women named Naomi Self, so I mean. Uh, names are common. Um, I think um, E.J. Smith was the captain of the Titanic, but he was also involved in a UFO sighting in 1947. E.J. Smith, not the same guy, obviously, but the point simply being, you know, the fact that H. Holmes was on a record uh, passenger list going into London really is sort of irrelevant. But they looked at the methodology of the murders and how they seemed to escalate and how they were pretty well planned out and that sort of thing. And they stopped after Holmes supposedly came back to the United States and back to Chicago. But the last Ripper murder, the last one that has been, you might say, um, uh, proven to be a, a Ripper murder, <clears throat> had taken place indoors. So the idea was that he'd learned that if he, he killed the people inside, not out on the street, he would have plenty of time to do with them whatever he wanted. And that was the purpose of the, uh, the murder castle. He would be able to uh, control the environment so that he could do his thing, his magical thing at that. Um, but the, the evidence has always struck me as very circumstantial. The evidence they presented is very circumstantial. Well, we don't know exactly where he was. He may have been in London. Well, yeah, okay. The methodology of the murders um, seems to be somewhat the same, but um, you know, it's just, just not def definitive evidence. And I, I think that's one of the problems you run into in a lot of these investigations. We just can't get the definitive evidence. We're always close. We always have something circumstantial. That kind of harkens back to the Socorro case where we had the... the um, people who had heard the, the craft or seen the craft and called the police. We know that they were out there. We just don't know who they are. So it's kind of a dead end. And, you, and as a skeptic, you can say, well, uh, since we don't know who they are and we couldn't uh, interview them, it's really kind of useless testimony. And, and there's uh, something to be said for that. I bring all of this up because I did a book called Conversations a number of years ago. And it started out as a book where a woman had thought she had been abducted by aliens and she wanted to find out whether this is what had been happening to her. So... Um, we, I, I had a friend who was versed in hypnotic regression techniques and we thought, well, we will see what, what happens. And what happened was we actually got her beyond the current life, you might say. And she began to talking about these horrific things going on in London and had sort of a, a British accent that she spoke with. And, and I always thought, you know, it sounded kind of like a put on accent. I don't know if they really talk that way in London in 1880 and that sort of thing. But she, um suggested she had been in this other incarnation in this past life she had been male and had been working with the real jack the ripper and the when you look at the the ripperology if you will you find out that some of the crimes he used like two knives and nobody seemed to think well maybe there were two people involved and there's what they call the double event where he killed two women within minutes of each other. And when I say minutes, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes of, of one another. And they think that he, he could have gotten from one location to the other to have committed the crime. But in this um, conversation that we were having under hypnotic regression, she suggested that the two guys did separate crimes that night. And that made a little bit of sense to me. So we were trying to figure out who this was, who was, who, who was the guy um, the real Jack the Ripper. The other guy seemed to be just sort of an accomplice. And eventually it came out, his name was Montague John Druitt. And he was a real person who lived in London at that time. His father had been a physician, which gives him a little bit of knowledge of anatomy and that sort of thing, which I thought was important. He committed suicide in 1891 after the Ripper murders had stopped. You know, so they'd be thinking, well, that makes a lot of sense to people, that that might be 
what happened to him. So what I'm saying now is now I've got three three names for you. We've we've got James um, Maybrick, we have H.H. Uh, H. Holmes, and I've just thrown out Montag John Druitt, who, by the way, if you go back and look at all the history of the um, Jack the Ripper crimes, all of them except Holmes appeared um, in the investigation. The um, uh, investigation in London, they did, they did pick up an American at one point who um, had been selling snake oil in Liverpool and thought that he might have been um, involved in this. And then the, the, the American, after he was let go by the police, immediately packed a, a book passage on the first steam line, uh, steamer and got his, got his butt out of uh, England. So they didn't follow up that. There was a crime that was committed in New York City not long after that that sounded like the Ripper and the police officials in New York and the police officials in London communicated back and forth about that and sounded they thought that maybe this was a real Ripper crime in New York, which, of course, gives gives kind of a, a, a push to the A.J. Holmes theory. But I, I think the real point here is, you know, um, here's a crime that's oh, 125, 130 years old. We don't really have a good idea of who it was. There's been a lot of suspects. There's a lot of stuff going on. And I just found it interesting that in the last couple of weeks, couple of months, that uh, two names have surfaced as the real Jack the Ripper with evidence to support that, whether it's um, Maybrick or H.H. Holmes. There's some very interesting um, evidence to support both of those contentions. The only thing I have for um, Druitt is the fact that uh, that was a name that came up through uh, the, the, the hypnotic regression sessions, and it was a legitimate person in the time who was kind of looked at as possibly being being Jack the Ripper. So I three three good possibilities. I'm not sure that we're ever going to get that resolved. But I thought it was kind of an interesting thing. Not really a topic that we've done on on the program, but it's something that uh, you know we, we could look into at some point if we so desire. It doesn't deal a lot with UFOs, but it deals with kind of the investigative techniques we need to use today to go back 50 years to kind of understand this stuff so we can see how you do these cold case investigations, which is kind of what they're talking about in, in that respect. I will put up um, a longer article about this on my blog at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com to give you a little bit more information and a link to a couple of other places that you might want to go to take a look at some of this thing. You can take a look at the program on history if you want to. Um, if you do on-demand television, you can go back and look at some of the earlier episodes and see where the thing is going or, um, or that sort of thing. You know, it's one of those things. But it's, it's also kind of a topic that is um, of interest to people who uh, tune in to the X-Zone Broadcast Network. You know, it's a wide variety of topics on the uh, on the network and, and some of the great shows. So take a look at xzbn.net or for my, my colleagues in Canada and Great Britain, xzbn.net and um, take a look at the programs that are being offered on the network and see if there's something that appeals to you. I'm sure there's things that you're going to be interested in and that sort of thing. Um, we're going to have to take a break here in just a minute. When we come back, we're going to, I think we're going to do a little bit on Roswell, kind of a wrap up thing. And so we can kind of uh, avoid that topic in the next year as we do our programs. Although we may get into some of it here and there because it's still a topic that's of interest to a lot, a lot of people. And we just had the interview with Don Schmidt that dealt with it a little bit that might be of interest to people. So take a look at that. And again, you can find it at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com. And of course, I did the book Roswell in the 21st century that we've talked about before that I think gives a more dispassionate look at what possibly fell at Roswell in 1947. We will come back after this quick break, so stick around. This is the Exxon Broadcast Network, broadcasting worldwide on broadcast affiliates and satellite program providers, including CNN Broadcast Network, Sirius Satellite Network, Star Media, Good News Radio Network, Angel Broadcast Network, Wiki Broadcast Network, 
at WPBN-TV. For more information on the X-Zone Broadcast Network, visit us at www.xzbn.net. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi, you can still listen to the Exxon Radio Show with Rob McConnell, The Science of Magic with Gwilda Wiaka, X-1, Dimension X, Space Patrol, and every minute of the Exxon Broadcast Network by calling 213-401-0080, courtesy of Audio Now. No smartphone, app, or internet needed. It saves your data plan and it's free if you have unlimited minutes. Call 213-401-0080 to listen on any phone, anytime, anywhere. Remember 213-401-0080 for the best of the paranormal, parapsychology, and sci-fi radio programming anywhere. 24-7-365. I have commercial breaks, as I promised so long ago, or just a few minutes ago. Um, I think we kind of finished with Jack the Ripper. I found the things interesting, thought maybe I would share them with you, because I'm sure you would find them interesting as well. So let's take a look at the Roswell case. As I said before the break, I did the book, Roswell in the 21st Century. My idea behind the book was to take a look at all the evidence as a cold case. Try to look at it dispassionately, not as a UFO event, not as a Project Mogul event, but as an event that took place in 1947. What could I learn by by reexamining the evidence? And there's there's piles of it if you count the testimonies and things like that that have been going on since 1978 when Jesse Marcel kind of blew the whistle on the case. So there's a lot of material to, to sort through and a lot of explanations have been offered. Uh, what I found was that a lot of the information probably wasn't true. I mentioned uh, a moments ago uh, Naomi Self in, in, in the context of searching for this nurse that Glenn Dennis had named, Naomi Self. And then we had found four women who were named Naomi Self, none of who were nurses and none of whom were in Roswell in 1947. Um, when we discovered that, and we couldn't find a nurse named Naomi Self, I mean, not even a nurse named Naomi Self, who had been in the military, uh, Vic Golubek, who had found a, a registry of all Army nurses. There's like 124,000 names on this registry, and no Naomi Self appeared, and had she been a nurse at Roswell in 1947, her name would have appeared. The story that Glenn Dennis told us about her being killed in a aircraft accident turned out not to be true. I had searched through the New York Times index um, in the pre-computer days. You had to; it was actually book a book that you had to go through. But it was indexed, so you could you could look at it uh, over a period of time, and and you could look up military aircraft accidents, and you could look to see if there was anything that was of interest there. I couldn't find anything that suggested um, a, a number of army nurses had been killed. Uh, Don Berliner did the same thing with Stars and Stripes. That's a paper printed for the soldiers overseas. And he found nothing about a story like that. When Vic Golubik said, well, we can't find a Naomi Self, there was no Naomi Self, Glenn Dennis changed the story. That suggests to me the story's not true. When you begin to modify the story on the basis of information being brought to you, that is a suggestion that the story isn't true. Um, He also told something else that really annoyed me. He said that, we, being the investigators, and that would be Don Schmidt, me, Stan Friedman, Bill Moore, um, I don't know who all, but all the Roswell investigators who'd been been there, had been pressing for a name, and he just wouldn't give up the name because he'd promised he hadn't, hadn't uh, he promised her he wouldn't give it up. And what he said was that you guys, I told you at the time, you guys wanted a name, I'd give you a name, but it wouldn't be the right name. He never said anything like that to me. And in fact, and the point that I always uh, bring up to prove, prove this being false. We had been looking for Robert Slusher and I'd gotten the name of a guy in Tennessee, I think it was. And I called him up and, uh, talked to me. I, he'd been in the army air forces, but he had been a pilot 
and uh, he was a major. Not the guy I'm looking for, because I'm looking for an NCO who had been more of a loadmaster type uh, guy or, or crew chief type guy. And so I'm telling Glenn, De Glenn Dennis is, is berating me and saying, why, why can't you find my nurse? I gave you the name. I gave you the name. And I said, well, we've been looking for Robert Slusher, for example. I talked to a guy today named Robert Slusher and wasn't the right guy. And he says, and, and Dennis says, oh, I know Robert Slusher. He lives over in Las Cruces. I called him up. He's the right guy. So, I mean, Dennis did put us on to Bob Slusher. The point simply is that, that Dennis had said to me at that point, I gave you the name. Why can't you find her? And now he's saying, well, I didn't give you the name. I made it up and I told you I made it up. Well, he didn't do that. And that's the kind of thing that really bothered me. Glenn Dennis had a wonderful story. Same thing with a guy named Jim Ragsdale. I mean, his story started like every science fiction movie you've ever seen. Um, they see the thing fly overhead and crash. If you remember the first blob with Stephen McQueen, the, the Steve McQueen, see the meteor fly overhead and crash and they go down there and they, they find the blob. Um, a wonderful story to tell. He's out there with his girlfriend, and uh, they just happen to be out there in the back of his pickup truck having a good time when the uh, thing flashes over. Um, as we talked to him and got more and more information from him, turned out he keeps changing the story. The one, the one aspect that I really loved is, is I'm told by, I think it was his son, could have been, or came from him through his son, that the alien creatures had been wearing golden helmets. There were like 15 golden helmets. And if I would give them $5,000, <clears> they would take me out and show me where the golden helmets are. I'm thinking if, they, if I give them $5,000, I deserve to be taken. The point is, gold is a really crappy metal for a helmet. It's heavy, it's soft, it makes a crummy helmet. There were no gold helmets. But then he changed the location. He changed all this kind of information about it. And we have to look at that and say, well, it's a hoax. And that's why in Roswell in the 21st century, we really don't talk about Ragsdale. Though I do talk about Glenn Dennis and his missing nurse. I have to excuse me. I had to take a, <clears throat> had to take a drink there of water, by the way. But and when you, we look at the Roswell case, in this dispassionate light and the things that have gone on and, and, and related to it, the alien autopsy nonsense, the Roswell slides nonsense, some of the other stuff going on about it, we have to look at this case and say, you know, it's not very strong. It's not very robust. It's not nearly the case we thought it was. Had we been able to find more documentation, had we been able to find something other than testimony, had we not been led down so many trails by so many people, and leading the charge down those trails was Walter Hott, the uh, public affairs officer from Oslo in 1947. You know, he said, where did you get the name Glenn Dennis? Got it from Walter Hott. Asked, uh, <clears throat> he said, you know, uh, the guy you want to talk to, the name you're searching for is uh, Glenn Dennis. Uh, gave us the name of Frank Kaufman. Frank Kaufman turned out to be completely bogus, wasn't involved at all. I remember asking Walter Hott, who gave us the name, by the way, said, one of the guys you want to talk to is, is uh, um, Frank Kaufman, standing outside of the bank building in downtown Roswell, across from where the Greyhound bus used to be. I throw in these details to show you that we're really there. And we asked him about Frank Kaufman and, and, and Glenn, Den Glenn Dennis. Walter Hott says... Anything he tells you is golden. He's vouching for the veracity of Frank Kaufman. Kaufman is not telling the truth. If Glenn, De Glenn Dennis, I've got Glenn Dennis on the brain. If Walter Hott is who he says he is, meaning on the inside of this thing, involved with the staff meetings and Blanchard, uh, Colonel Blanchard being the base commander and all these people involved, if he is who he says he is, he would have known that Frank Kaufman wasn't involved in any way, shape, or form. He would have known that Glenn Dennis was not the mortician was called. There apparently was a mortician called, but it wasn't Glenn Dennis. It was apparently somebody else. So we look at all of that in a dispassionate light, and we get back to uh, Jesse Marcel. Jesse Marcel had a tendency to embellish stories. And he read a book by Linda Corley, who interviewed Marcel in his home in Houma, Louisiana. Um, you find these embellishments in the book. And that doesn't bode well for the original guy that, that turned us all on to 
uh, the Roswell case. I'll take a step back and say, well, I talked to Bill Brazel, the son of the man that found the debris, and he seemed to be completely legitimate, completely above board, a very honest man, and I believe what he told us. And there were people like that that we talked to. Um, uh, Edwin Easley would be another. He was the provost marshal who suggested it was an extraterrestrial craft to me. We talked to um, uh, Colonel Briley, and for the life of me, I can't think of his first name right, right at the moment, who was the operations officer at the base, talked about this. So we had some very good information. But when you get down to the bottom line and you look at this information, it is basically testimony. We have newspaper reports that were very interesting that give us some of this information. We have uh, limited documentation that really doesn't lead us there. We have the photographs that were taken in General Ramey's office, which may lead to a wonderful piece of evidence if we can decipher the, the message that Ramey is holding, which there are um, attempts for that going on even today, trying to clarify that so we can read it a little bit better. That may give us some information. But when we look at the Roswell case as it stands today, it's just not as robust as it has once been. And as I say, if you're really interested in the Roswell case and want to get a different perspective on it, I would say take a look at Roswell in the 21st century, because I think I've done basically the job of creating a dispassionate look at the evidence as it exists in 2017 as opposed to what it appeared in 1990 and 1991 when I was doing the first books about that. Uh, again, if you take a look at my blog, www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com, and you, you type in Jesse Marcel or you type in some of these other names that I've given you, uh, it'll bring up the articles that have been published about that, and you can read those, and there's usually links, or there may be links to other stories or suggestions of where else to look for information about these things. It gives you a better perspective on exactly what was going on in the topics that we've kind of talked about today, which would be Socorro, even Jack the Ripper, and the, the Roswell UFO crash. Next week, I'm going to be talking with Greg Bishop, who is um, a ufologist, so we're going to be kind of back on topic with that. Um, and I've had some nice discussions with him, and I think we'll get some good information about where his research has taken him. And the week after that, I'm going to be talking to a guy named David Buher, who has done some research into what may have been the really the first abduction case reported in the United States. I got some questions about that. It's a little hinky, um, but it was... Um, it took place in 1959 as opposed to 1961, and the investigation that the Lorenzans were involved in took place in 1959. So you know, we have that sort of thing going on, and that, that I think this will be something interesting coming out of all of that. And as I say, I'll usually have something up on my blog that may give you a little bit of for more little bit more information or provide you with um, some other places to search for information so that you can learn more about that. <clears throat> That's what's coming up in the next couple of weeks. I hope to get the Air Force officer on who was responsible for the Air Force Roswell investigation and that sort of thing. So we got a lot of stuff coming up in the near future. So I think that what you should do is make sure you've got us marked down on your calendar so you can tune in to a different perspective. And we'll be back in 167 hours. 